0: Welcome to Arcnext Sessions, episode 84. I'm Paul, and I'm here with my co-hosts, Amelia, Donna, and Ken. Joining us this week is Sean Lally, Chicago-based architect, founder of multidisciplinary practice Weathers, author of The Air from Other Planets, and host of the recently launched podcast, Night White Skies. Sean, thanks so much for joining us this week.
1: Thank you very much for having me.
0: So maybe we can uh, start out with uh, telling us a little bit about your practice and maybe how that evolved into publishing a a new podcast.
1: Yeah, sure. So I have an office called Weathers here in Chicago. The work is really kind of an extension of... Of a background that, that threads landscape architecture and architecture. I'm trying to think about what that means for the profession and for design. And the interest had always been about trying to look at what opportunities are out there for a profession, you know, for architecture. Basically, how do you take advantage of what's where the kind of stars are aligning today outside of the profession or in the periphery of the profession and we can kind of launch on? And two of those big pressures I kind of thought were undeniable were the fact that there's a manipulation of the environment around us by us, climate change, uh, however you want to call it. But it's extreme and it's real. And the other second being the idea of our human bodies and the fact that, you know, whether you think about it as bioengineering, whether you think about it as um, wearable technologies or health or pharmaceuticals, what have you, we're kind of in a unique position where we're doing not only the manipulation of the environment around us, like how we control materials to move through and define space but also the human body itself and how it perceives that space how our body senses space or records that space and so it was kind of a a way in which the office works on a, a kind of couple two scales one we're kind of getting away from a bit more which were the larger competition scales trying to look for larger commissions that were dealing with much more urban scale larger scale projects and then at the other end were much more prototypes small scale installations which were always outside usually not inside a gallery space but outside that you know you could interact and move through and so the podcast was really just a way a kind of way of basically a continuing education <laughs> credit for myself as a way of finding others that are like-minded and that are looking at things like this. And it it ranges. So a lot of the guests... Some of the guests are designers, but the attempt is to really get people outside of the profession specifically. So people who are in philosophy, who are uh, scientists, engineers, as well as designers and try to bring them together and kind of hear what they're working on and what their approaches are to this this kind of discourse. And it's always under the heading of architecture, landscape architecture design. I mean, I, I always try to thread it through that lens. That's that's what I'm bringing them into a conversation about. But it was really just a, a way of kind of opening up the idea of, of what's going on with people. I mean, there's just so much going on today. Maybe it's not that there's so much happening more than there was 20 years ago, but maybe we have access to sing so much more so quickly that it was just a great opportunity, I thought, to to kind of connect with people and see what people are up to and, and hear about that and have conversations.
2: So Sean, I'm intrigued by your your comment that you sort of are thinking at these very disparate scales of sort of huge master planning, city building scale, as well as prototyping or very small scale and in, in particular about the human body as an object and an entity that occupies space. Was there something in your schooling background that sort of exposed you to both of these extremes or were you exposed to something more middle ground and you felt like, wait a minute, we're not asking the bigger questions or the more specific questions. I mean, what started you first thinking about these very disparate scales of work within the field?
1: You know, what, that's a good question. That's something I hadn't thought about specifically, but I I think I have an answer. (laughs) Well, good. (laughs) So my my undergraduate degree was in landscape architecture at UMass in Amherst. And that was a a large land grant school where we were doing a lot of work with, I guess, uh, at the time they're called greenways. So this idea of large urban planning, um, regional planning almost, like how you would connect aspects of Massachusetts and Connecticut and and um, you know all the way down the east Coast looking at at ways in which resources could connect to create these large greenway systems of, of access and I hadn't really thought about it until until you mentioned it but that that was a kind of underpinning of, of a lot of a lot of the work of course in landscape architecture and curriculum we were looking at small gardens and some much smaller projects but that Greenway approach of, of looking at data and resources and trying to how to kind of overlay that information you know back in the day with trace paper on top of one another and trying to figure out what those possibilities are and then maybe the vice versa coming out of UCLA in the late 90s early 2000s where a lot of that was fabrication you know looking at technologies we didn't actually have any 3D printers at the time but milling and um, a, you know a range of other kind of technologies in which we were producing prototypes mock-ups and models and that that has always been a real interest to me. I, I've always enjoyed making making things. So if I've had a, within most of the work of the office, if there was a distinction, an opportunity to, to go between making a rendering or making a mock-up that we could photograph, I would always lean towards making the model and photographing it. It was probably not <laughs> always the, the wisest move in terms of amount of time um, that that took, but There was something about making the physical that that I could engage with better than kind of defaulting to a a rendering of it. And so, yeah, I I, I guess that 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 is kind of the tie in between looking at those two. And I I don't see them really as very different from each other. I mean, they they certainly are important both to be doing at the same time because they they reinform each other. You know, one allows you to see the same question or the same ask the same question, but then approach it at, at, at very different scales and and be able to kind of always produce a feedback mechanism between the two.
2: I actually just came out of the Exhibit Columbus Symposium this mm-hmm. weekend, and um, they constantly brought up through this was the S- Saarinen's admonition that the architect should always t- study the thing in the next bigger scale, right? Mm. So the chair in the room, the room in the house, the house in the whatever. So that I think you're right that 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 disparity of scales across scales has to inform one another. So yeah, how can they not, right? right, right. <laughs> we, we live in, in bodies that are used to sitting in something small and we also fly across countries and worlds
1: in airplanes. So, I mean, in many ways, as a designer, it's, you know, not to put it in a law term, but it's due diligence, <laughs> you know, <if> without right. <laughs> without knowing those implications or at least entertaining them, it's very difficult to to understand the thing you are approaching.
3: Hey, Sean, I was listening to uh, episode three with uh, Thune and Velikov and listening to the other episodes of your uh, podcast. And I found myself nodding vociferously when you all were talking. And it's interesting because to me is that, I've always been connected to this idea about the, the body and, and architecture uh, from my reading of Elaine Scarry, I wrote a book uh, called Body and Pain, to my actual own physical self being connected to technology through uh, EEGs and feeling that, that, that kind of pain. And so the, one of the things I thought about is that when I was listening to that conversation and I was wondering... The only real overriding question I had was that, is it possible that as we deepen our connection, both literally and metaphysically to technology, that the possibility of our that we deepen our capacity for intimacy or empathy for one another? Is that is that something that I mean, it just seems like the Facebook is one level, but the, the more the more deeply we get connected to technology that there's a maybe that's what we're looking for is that kind of level of uh,
1: empathy. Yeah, I think it probably works at a not only different scales or, or, or different platforms, I should say, maybe. But I mean, I think I think that, that, could, that could be a relationship. And when you, when you were saying that, I, I was having a kind of a, a flashback to talking to Timothy Morton, which was one of the episodes, and we were talking about that same kind of conversation you were just having about, but doing it in relationship to a, a species beyond the human. So trying to, the idea that when you start looking about some of the technologies or sensory perception, when you can actually perceive some of the information that, say, Others may be able to feel or engage or, or not be able to understand in terms of inputs coming in, but also beyond that, maybe secondary an additional species. You know, what does that mean to your understanding of, or that idea of empathy or kind of getting at least some some realm of, of um, insight uh, beyond your own? It's, you know, I... I I don't know. I mean, I don't know how that plays out in terms of platforms like like Facebook or or Twitter when you're just trying to connect. And it's funny you should mention that because I was just joking around with some friends uh, the other day saying that this week I'm actually getting off of uh, instant messaging and a few other things because I just needed a break from it, primarily because it just was overloading all my decision making. But, you know, so there's always pitfalls and and, and benefits to all all of this. I think one of the, the kind of real interests of the design office is really to try to test out what are the implications to a lot of these technologies? So, you have people who are working in human sensory perception. So, everything from healthcare to wearable technologies to bioengineering. And in the flip side, you have a kind of augmentation of the environment, things in which we can actually control, manipulate you know, microclimates and environments. And these are happening with these are huge industries. These are trillion dollar industries, the kind of energy sector, you know, manipulation and and harnessing of energy and bioengineering. And ironically, they're very, they don't really, I'm not going to say a kind of blanket statement that they don't talk to each other, but they're, they're really not, they don't overlap a whole lot. And so as an architect, I think what we do really well is actually being able to stitch together these two sides, you know, understanding a little bit about the body and understanding a little bit about the materiality and kind of how the body interrelates with that material and the space that it provides, you know, the boundaries that it makes. You know, at the end of the day, that's what architects, at least the way I interpret it or choose to interpret it is that we manipulate material to create boundaries and those boundaries are basically how we interact with space and so going back to that idea of of the technologies and that empathy i think there's a lot of stuff we we don't know the implications of it because they're coming out of out of for profit tech companies that are looking to turn around and kind of turn around tech and advancements so quickly that we haven't really integrated them into design in such a way where we were trying to look to figure out what those implications would be with how we socialize with each other, how we interact with each other, how we engage space and kind of communicate that to others. And so that, that's a kind of big, a big question mark, actually, of, of, of a lot of the work. You know, one of
3: the things I appreciate about your podcast, it is um, a combination of, it seems to me that you're trying to pull off this very interesting and very fine line of uh, high art and low art. So when you talk about science fiction and you talk about, and and then you bring it to how science fiction and actual science is actually connecting. When I was listening to the the podcast, like the three movies that kept flashing in my brain when all of you were talking was Dune (laughs) with -hmm. the still suits, Minority Report with the uh, kind of VR. and and augmented reality when he's walking through a a mall. And then the last thing is uh, Wolverine. And I think about, you know, how these different technologies, when connected to the body, alter the experience. And then I come back to the idea that, you know, our bodies are better than any technological device out there telling us what the temperature means to us. So a certain person might say it's too hot. Another person might feel it's too cold. So our bodies are are infinitely better at computing their needs, uh, much better than any technology can. And I'm always fascinated by this idea, when is technology going to actually interface with the body and actually be an extension of my physical being so that it can kind of augment my experience in a way that's much more physically uh, resonant?
1: Yeah, I mean that that is, I mean a kind of common example of that would be. Just our our eyes, you know, from the idea of, you know, just a, a couple of decades, the idea of glasses to the idea of contacts to the idea of LASIK to the idea that that you can actually improve your eye vision better than 2020. You know, if you were to go into the doctor's room, they can they can provide for you better than so-called average. And so a lot of this is really building off the idea of of existing human sensory perception that, that can be not just augmented to give us something that maybe is not akin to something we already have say, sonar or something, but also senses that we already have, you know. So uh, there's a company I'm thinking of, like, I think it's called Athos, which is looking at like a basically a bodysuit for sports or for anyone who's working out and you wear it and then uh, it produces a kind of electrical signals through the body with a kind of placement that you put on on various locations as you work out and in that you get a kind of report that talks about the use of your muscles, which muscles were being used, which ones were being used to what percent and so you start to realize where you're pushing and where you're essentially being off balance in terms of of, of the kind of You call it the symmetry of our body, you know. So maybe you're you're kind of using one side more than the other. It can actually map your body and understand its performance. And a lot of this stuff is all mostly about indexing, right? So you you know you have a Fitbit or you have this or the other, kind of indexes your health. But you know, as you start talking about things like the eye, you realize that these things are eventually starting to move on to actually change vision a little bit and so that the idea of the lens you know you look at the EPFL in Switzerland and Lausanne is actually looking at a zoomable contact lens you know so how do you put a contact lens in but actually be able to use it to zoom in and out or to actually see an ultraviolet or infrared light and again you mentioned the idea of high and low within everything within this from body augmentation you have someone like the EPFL who's probably spending millions and millions of dollars on zoomable contact lens and then you have do-it-yourself people who are putting forms of a chlorine in their eyes to see ultraviolet light at night that allows them, kind of turns their eyes black. And for about 20 minutes, they can actually see ultraviolet light and actually see at night as they move through the landscape. It eventually fades off and the body kind of move, removes it from their body. But I mean, that's something that FDA has not approved. <laughs> but, <laughs> but it doesn't mean that there aren't people kind of body hacking themselves, just to kind of understand what those potentials are. And so what's really important with this, you mentioned the science fiction, and one of the guys we, I spoke to, Ed Finn, who's at uh, Arizona State University, looking at a um, founding director for the Center of Science and Imagination which is really about this idea of which is really launched from neil stevenson the science fiction writer this idea of bringing together science fiction and the sciences so science fiction writers working with scientists and engineers as a way of of projecting the near future and actually working together to kind of figure out what this is and how the power that science fiction doesn't necessarily have to be fantastical and not necessarily unplausible and and science isn't about always the immediacy of what you can you can do right now and so a lot of the stuff that the interest here is that this isn't fantastical. This isn't far out into the years to come. So that idea of the chlorine in the eye example um, of the do-it-yourself biohackers is that this is thing people are doing now. You can do now. We know we can manipulate the environment. We do it constantly, whether we mean to or not i mean that's that's basically what we we do so this is all very immediate and the kind of understory here is that this is happening so quickly so much of this is advancing that if we're not conscious of it if we're not putting it in our wheelhouse and kind of playing with it we're, we're it's going to slip past us or there's going to be a lot of repercussions that where maybe we're unprepared for because we didn't we didn't question it in the right way and as as architects as designers we are really in a great position to do that we're in a great position to collaborate and work with those people and integrate it into design and test it and run it and, and kind of maybe see it through a lens that they didn't plan to see it or they hadn't even thought to plan it and then allow that to be a conversation to kind of inform their work and our work in a kind of back and forth way, which and again, going back to the podcast, that that's kind of the point of it is to kind of just kind of start those conversations and, and hear that and kind of see what people are doing, what people are working on and uh, run it through the lens of the architect, not just a kind of series of interviews or, or book reports.
4: Yeah, Sean, the episode with Ed Finn was the first one that I listened to. And for anyone out there listening who isn't already familiar with your podcast, I would recommend that one as a starting point because it really is this very, I don't want to say necessarily positivist, but it really does open up these big ideas and very ambitious intellectual conversations around the ability for something as simple as, as narrative to really actually... Not just allow a future to happen, but to predict it through the influence of culture on general society of just like inspiring those children who pick up a book about or watch Star Trek or something and then find a way to actually make that a partial reality once they grow up and have competencies. But specifically about the podcast, I want to kind of bring back a conversation a little bit to the specifics of you as an architect doing a podcast and first ask what might just be a very easy question, which is what the title means and where it's from.
1: The title so night white skies that was just and if you if you go onto the to the website for the for the podcast um, nightwhiteskies.com you you'll see some satellite images from nasa and really it's this idea that you look at the earth from space and you really start to see you can actually locate cities but you locate the cities not maybe based on geography but based on the lighting that's produced so the the kind of single light bulb as a little technology that you can hold in your hand, of course, it requires a little a bit of an infrastructure, but the light bulb itself as a kind of discrete object when duplicated and reused over and over can takes over the world. I mean, it, it literally takes over the entire landscape imagery of, of this light. And it's so the idea of a night white sky is basically an artificial sky. It's a uh, it's at night. It's but it's it's kind of completely lit. Our cities are lit all the time. So it's just kind of a, just a play on the fact that a lot of the work um, and these ideas of a podcast about architecture's future. You know, when both the environment and the bodies are open for design, is to say, well, as a night white sky. You know, we're already doing that. You know, that that's just kind of it doesn't have to be something that's open for debate. And so that's that's kind of where the the title came from.
4: All right. I see. I, I imagined it initially as some kind of like again the sensory input thing of something that you can someone who can actually sense the fact that that is happening without having seen it. But so your first motivation for doing the podcast did that come more from the personal level of this ability to design individual and somatic understanding of the built environment, or more of the macro level of environmental design? Was there kind of a preference to either side that initially inspired the podcast?
1: Uh, regarding the podcast, no, no, I, I, I don't think so. So. The design office of Weathers and and doing a series of of design projects is and continues to be very informative. Um, But also for me, writing was very important, has always been very important. So prior to the book, They Are from Other Planets, I had done or edited and co-edited other publications, other books. And so writing had always been a way for me to not articulate, just articulate my ideas, but just develop my ideas to even understand what the question is that I want to put forward. And when I finished The Air from Other Planets as a kind of single author book, that was a kind of draining moment. And I'm sure a lot of people out there know that feeling of just kind of being drained from that and also not knowing where to go next with that? <laughs> like, there, there's no question that I learned a lot from that. It was kind of a great way for me to kind of propel my my, my thought process. But there was no way that I was going to write another book right away or ever. So the idea of the podcast was more immediacy. That was a big aspect of it. I think anyone who's involved in architecture uh, listening to this is thinking the same scenario of the turnaround is so long. Sometimes, you know, if you're writing a book or you're even if you're writing an article. It's months and years and years before you see that kind of come through. And if you're working on buildings or installations, right, at the short term, it's six months and the long term, it's years. And so the podcast for me also is, you know, every week it comes out every Monday and every week I speak with somebody and have a conversation and I, I wrap it, I package it and I move on to the next one. And so the idea is to not be too precious with them. I, I don't have a problem not knowing something when I'm talking to somebody. I mean, I would much rather ask a silly question and get a good answer, then then kind of prepare everything to the nth degree. And it allows me to kind of fill that void that not writing a book again, you know, or, or working in kind of the writing version of it, it still allows me to prepare and, and have conversations and, and kind of kick off those, you know, those the gray matter, but maybe just do it in a slightly format. So I very much think of it along the same lineage of writing, you know, if I was to kind of list those endeavors, I, in a weird way, I would put the podcast in that lineage. Obviously, I'm, I'm, I'm not writing word to paper in the same way. But it's still word to audience.
0: Sean, I was noticing in your podcast that you will leave in, you know, like Skype glitches or hangups or you know little uh, imperfections in the background. I was wondering if if that's intentional. Does that help kind of communicate your the format that you're going for, or is that strictly just kind of uh, an efficiency? Uh, are you are you doing that for sake of efficiency?
1: No, I um the plan originally. So the first two podcasts were. The goals were, were a bit more extreme where I really wanted to have a physical conversation in the room with somebody, like actually have them come to my office or go visit them. So Philip Takman came here, Timothy Morton. I was in Houston to see some family. I just went to go see him at Rice. And I really loved that idea of being in the room with somebody and, and talking with them and then making it clear to them that I was not going to edit anything, you know, so unless there was some giant moment that they couldn't live with, (laughs) having said. (laughs) Um, Other than that, I was going to just leave it as is. And so I I do edit a little bit. We're very lucky right now in the fact that I'm here in downtown Chicago and there hasn't been an ambulance or um, a fire (laughs) because there's always something. Um, So I would sometimes have to edit that a little bit if it just goes way too much. But beyond that, I, I really do try to just keep it Hit the record button. Went to start it, and I hit the record button again to end it. And I feel like that provides allows I think maybe the listener to feel like they're just eavesdropping in on a conversation, like they just sort of sat down in the room with us and just hear what's going on, all you know, in all forms of it, as opposed to getting a, a highly edited version. But it, you know, it's funny because as as uh, architects, as designers, I think we you know we get kind of caught up maybe in in the technologies and the the software that we have available, and so with. Having an Adobe suite, you know, now that's all monthly based. I get audition that comes <laughs> that comes with it, and it's tough not to get carried away sometimes and start removing things. And I've just I kind of hold myself back and just say, just you know, let it all go, unless, like I said, there is a fire engine that just makes it impossible. There we go, right on.
2: I actually love it. I love that it's that raw, and it does to me very much feel like you're just sitting in and listening to a conversation between people. The other funny thing in some of the ones, the episodes I listened to, is a lot of um, "Let me just show you this on the screen," you know, and yeah, obviously yeah. we can't, as <laughs> podcast listeners,
1: <laughs> see. Yeah, but I, I didn't know how quite how to handle that, so I, I just sort of I just rolled with it and did my best to uh, describe what I was seeing. It
2: is appropriate to me because as architects we are so visual. We yes. understand that that's how we want to communicate, and it I think it will lead. People people to go look for whatever it might have been that your guest was showing you, you know, right, to, to right. see if they can find it somewhere. Right.
1: Yeah. So. Yeah, that, that was that was a good moment.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to ask, and this is going a little off the podcast, I guess. But I love, I love the podcast. I've loved listening to it, to all of our listeners. It's some very heady conversations that are also just really um, intriguing and, and fun to listen to and great topics that you feel like you do want to, to continue pursuing a little more afterwards. But I was listening recently to a, um, a session at Yale University. There was a symposium where five deans of various colleges spoke about their school's mission, basically, to use a very corporate word. And Monica, one of the things that Monica Ponce de Leon said was that she is somewhat concerned about this attitude that seems to be pervading architecture education right now, that architects can basically anything that we decide we want to talk about becomes an architecture topic. You know, that there's kind of an anything goes breaking down of boundaries whereby if an architect wants to think about small local food production, we would go ahead and do it without maybe considering that there might be other experts that would know more about it. Your podcast is so so broad and and diverse, and I'm wondering where you sort of draw any kind of line, or if you do draw a line around what you know, what is an appropriate topic to come at as an architect versus one that you should really just be a, a sponge and
1: try to learn first. Mm-hmm. Yeah, sorry, can you hear me? Yeah, okay. Um, I wasn't got a little bit of a problem here. Yeah, I I don't know how to how to answer that. Um, I I don't know where she was going with that, but my. My gut reaction is to, to a Vietnam uh, to, to disagree completely I, I don't understand my, my problem with that and uh, there's just been a lecture here that that I'm I'm, I'm about to uh, check out online um, it was with um, Peter Heisman talking about autonomy and architecture and what I question is what what are what are you trying to hold on to what what how are you defining in her case architecture and why is that so precious that that it, it means you couldn't delve into other other activities or other um, other events I mean primarily because if you're talking about everything from like say food i mean that's not personally my 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 cup like what i'm looking at but i would think if like if that is a current pressure on society today and you as an architect who is defined who looks at space and and use of these things can contribute to that conversation then then you should i mean i don't i don't see why you would be prevented it because some rules and regulations of the discipline or the practice as they're outlined in a contract somewhere dictate what you look at and what you don't i i I don't follow that um and then as it turns to the to the podcast you know i really do try to to tie it very specifically to this idea of people whether they are um, writers or philosopher or or a scientist or a designer who's looking at these two main things ways in which they manipulate the environment through Energy systems, or environmental forces, or if they're looking at the human body in some manner and the sensory perception of that body, and if they're if they're playing with within that realm of of approach, then as far as I'm concerned, that fits within the the realm of of this, you know, quote unquote, larger project. And so I think it's extremely important to to be talking to people like Peter Lloyd-Jones, who's a who's a biologist, you know, he refers to himself as a spatial biologist in the sense that though his background is in physics and biology, and he works in a in the medical college at Thomas Jefferson University, he's invested very heavily in design. He's, he's worked and collaborated with Jenny Sabin uh, quite a bit, and or Ed Finn, who's looking at science fiction and engineering. He doesn't take much to look at anyone within who, who loves science fiction to understand how much of that is just another medium to talk about space and social implications of, of our futures. Or, of course, Tim Morton looking at um, ecologies, dark ecology. So I think these all circle around a very similar question. Um, and as long as they're Within that that framework, which I feel I've set out, then I want to I want to hear from them and I, I want to talk to them about what they're doing and understand what they're doing and, and question what they're doing and hopefully through the the podcast have them question me you know I really do I I look forward to moments in which it's a little uncomfortable because at that point you know you're kind of treading on something new or something you've overlooked in the past and that uncomfortable moment means you're onto something you know it means you you've either been sidelined sidetracked sidelined because you you just hadn't thought of it for some reason and we really want to write that down and, and and travel that line later but i really question this this the kind of autonomy that is really becoming you know, has been present in, in architecture and I, and I don't know where it comes from. I don't know if it comes from a, an insecurity an, an unwillingness to, to open the discipline. I don't think there's any problem or a lack of, of opportunity out there. Um, well, the, you know, I've
3: always, I've always tried to reach outside of architecture because I find that architects to be inherently boring. Um, in the profession profession very much the same way. I I think that the vitality I find and the spirit I bring are things I think about that I don't focus on building, but I think about in terms of my own private thinking about architecture. I'm always reaching outside of the discipline because I think that the the discipline has been spent, that there aren't any new ideas um, in architecture unless you you grab from the outside and infuse the, the the profession with it because it you know columns a column a column a column column so I, I totally agree with you there i never understand that kind of closed-minded that that closed system when inherently i think openly about um the possibility and your podcast is the one thing that like started spinning my brain i was like i was like walking on uh, uh on my, on my tippy toes, like so excited just to kind of think about the things that you were uh, drawing my um, mind back to um, that I forgot for so long. My only last question for you is that, who do you, who are you planning to have on next? I mean, do you have any wish lists? Do you, I mean, do you have any, who are your goals? I mean, the one person that comes to mind, and I don't know if, um, if she would ever do it, but um, because she's such a celebrity now, mm-hmm. uh, is Neri uh, Oxman. Mm-hmm. Um, is that someone who's kind of high on your list? or are you already interviewed or what have you?
1: You know, actually, I hadn't thought of that. No, I mean, I would, I would, wouldn't be against that. It's not someone who's on like the the schedule coming up or anything like that. But of course, yeah. Um, I mean, there's there's a, a range of um, of people. I think I'm I'm trying to approach it in in slightly different ways. So some of it are are people that I that I've never met that I think are just doing interesting work. So. You have to excuse me if I'm mispronouncing a name here. Uh Gretchen Bakey or Bake, who is who just wrote a book about the grid and it's it's really about the energy grid system here in the United States, you know, how we've kind of moved from this idea of um, kind of connecting the kind of National uh, grid system for power and how we move into the 21st century. If we are looking for alternate power sources, what that needs to be and how that's going to change both the grid system, but also the cities itself. That 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 kind of move forward with that. Um, so everything from from stuff like that to um, Bradley Cantrell at Harvard, who's looking at simulations of uh, the environments. You know, I think he's looking a lot at the Mississippi River as a way of kind of understanding the past as well as like the predictions of the future and how those those um, ecosystems and stuff move. And again, I'm going to be Awful with names here, and so one of the things that I do before I give every any interview is I I have the guests say their name <laughs> so that so that I can memorize it over and over again so that when by the time I say it I, I get it right. But they yeah, they, they range. There are people that are looking you know within the sciences, and there are people who are outside of the sciences who are looking at healthcare, who are who are looking at different ways in which uh, kind of the roles of technology and why the why why most people are kind of unsure of adopting technology in many ways. So they they range quite a bit. Um, I think I can say without, because people always, you know, there's always a chance of someone bailing out the last minute, so maybe without giving too many specific names. Uh, Or Darren Anderson, who wrote Invisible Cities. It's a great book. He'll be on the podcast. So it ranges quite a bit. Um, It it all kind of ranges into, I should correct myself, it ranges in their the um, say the profession or discipline they currently operate in, but it doesn't range too far outside of of the actual trajectory or the the approach of the podcast itself, which is about the, these two things: what we do with our environment and what we do with our bodies.
0: So, Sean, now that you've gotten into podcasting, I mean, I'm interested to hear your thoughts about about the podcasting medium. In general and and what it can offer architects. Because I know, I mean, we've been, we've been doing it now for a couple of years and uh, you know, we had a a variety of kind of motivations to get into podcasting and we've seen a lot of changes in the, in the world of podcasting. There's a lot of podcasts that have kind of uh, reached into the mainstream in the last couple of years that have got people, you know, really into, into subscribing to new shows. So what are your thoughts about podcasting? And and do you think that it's something that, that uh, architects can easily adapt into their into their practices or their work?
1: Actually, I should be tapping into your knowledge about this um, because you guys have been doing this for a number of years. But yeah, I mean, one of the things that I've just, what kind of piqued my interest was the podcast has a lot of different forms and way in which people approach it. And to be, you know, completely transparent, I think there are, there are, there are people who I, who I enjoy listening to. One of them, believe it or not, is, is Joe Rogan. He's uh, the comedian. He's not only very—I'm I'm guilty
0: of listening to that yeah, too. Yeah, but he's, his, <laughs> his his
1: depth of knowledge is pretty impressive, actually. And so he can go kind of just bring on one of his comedian friends and have some fun, or he can. Kind of really kind of get into some of the specifics of of um, of consciousness and and diet and stuff like that. But more specifically, you know, for someone like him, he uses it for long form conversations. His conversations are like three hours each, and he really goes that route because he he feels as if within a conversation that's three hours, it's unscripted. No one has anything other than a little yellow legal pad that they can write some ideas down so they don't forget them. But it really kind of brings up conversations that I don't think either either of them had ever planned on going. Another one being Sam Harris. Um, Mm -hmm. and Sam Harris does a very different Approach into you I know mean, he's a, a neuroscientist I believe and so his his background is a little different but again he he goes for a kind of long form two hour talk.
0: Tim Ferriss did an interview with Sam Harris a while ago that was kind of a nice introduction to his work that okay. would be a nice lead into his to his podcast.
1: Yeah, because they they are you know quite good and and then there are other people who do very short ones you, you know who who want to keep it down to like a thirty minutes which allows you to be really kind of concise and 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 kind of clean with with the directive and I really haven't found my my way with that yet the first two podcasts podcasts were an hour and a half each and i think that was a lot of it was because i was face to face with somebody and we kind of just went on various tangents and then these now that i've realized i had to do them more and more over skype i'm trying to keep them to about about an hour um, and they usually stay uh you know about an hour a little bit more than an hour and somewhere down the road i think i would like to to start doing more um face-to-face conversations with a, a pair of people you know go go to san francisco go to la go to new york and find two people work with and have a conversation you know that are from very different backgrounds and have a two three-hour conversation that can really get into the kind of meaty questions and, and conversations, you know, so the sort of sub-formats within the format. But I think, I, honestly, podcasting to me seems really, really great. I think there's so many, so many of them. I, I mean, I can't remember the exact numbers now of how many podcasts are out there, but it's it's phenomenally large and it's very immediate. You know, you don't, at this point, you don't pay anything for for a podcast. So it's just free knowledge that you can download. And and they are, you know, they are quite different from each other as to, as to how how, the, how they go about it. And so it, it in a weird way, you know, like most things within architecture, it's uh, this has been out there for quite a while and it's slowly making its way into architecture. And, you know, we'll see how it how it how our profession or our discipline can can mutate it a little bit to uh, to our needs.
0: It seems like there's a lot of room in, in architecture for more podcasts. So hopefully we'll see some more.
1: Yeah, I absolutely think there's I would love to see more and more of it.
0: One thing that I found that was quite interesting is that our audience for our podcast is quite distinct from our, from our audience online on, for our website. There's, I mean, there's a lot of crossover, but one thing that I noticed was that there, there are a lot of people that were following Architect back in the early days that just can't anymore due to like busy schedules, but have kind of picked back up. With the podcast because of its different format, you know, you can, you can listen to it yeah. while commuting. And so we, we found that there's a slightly, I guess our audience skews a little bit on the older and kind of more professional. And at, while, while online, we attract more of a younger architecture audience and, and student audience.
1: That's really interesting. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, that's another thing of this is like the ability to, to track that kind of data is pretty impressive uh, to figure out who, you know, who people are in terms of like where they're downloading it, when they're downloading it, what time of day they download it. You can't, of course, know when they actually listen to it. But but yeah, there, there's it's pretty wide open right now as to as to what you can do with it.
2: So there there was a it just I find it funny then looking doing a little prep work for today. Paul went back and found a post that was on Archonnect about one of your recent guests, Tim Morton. And in reading that, uh, that article was posted by Nicholas Carotti, who's a writer on Archonnect. And the article was great. And I commented on it. And my comment was, why isn't this a podcast? I can't read this while i'm <laughs> drafting
1: i must have heard you i must have heard you
2: you heard me and you put him on your podcast but i also feel like i just saw a news item recently about a improved ability for websites to be read to you right there must there's a technology that allows websites to be
1: yeah i mean be, actually it's pretty yeah it's apple if the new um, ios if you download it on your phone if you have an apple phone it turns out now that when you get a voicemail on your phone you don't even have to hear it you can just tap it and it it transcribes it for you into text so, but it,
4: this will do the opposite of that, right? This is something for publishers.
0: Yeah, wh- Apple just released this, I, I believe, yesterday. And it's, do you remember what it's called, Amelia?
4: Um, I can draw it up. Just give it a description.
0: They're, through iTunes, they're allowing people to subscribe to audio versions of websites that are uh, narrated by professional voiceover artists.
2: Oh, they! Oh, I didn't get that. I didn't oh. understand that it was narrated. But so again, going back, Sean, to your very casual and relaxed presentation of these conversations, I do feel like I would miss that. I mean, I think if, if it was just a, uh, a bot reading the text in a bot voice, that would be annoying.
1: And uh, James Earl Jones could do this for you. <laughs>
2: well, I mean, depending on the voice, I guess that could be nice. But I do really enjoy about the podcast format, the fact that it so frequently just sounds like people having a conversation. I enjoy that very personal. Well, I think too. one
1: of the things, too, is what I don't do anymore and just I've only been doing this for six weeks is uh, write down my thoughts when I do the introduction, because, mm-hmm. you know, as, as someone who writes, you you realize your your voice for publication and your voice for conversation are two completely different things. Mm-hmm. And I think what becomes interesting is when you have, if I was to write something for a blog or, 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 or a paper and then have somebody read that out, out loud, as a way of transcribing it, that would, that's a very different approach to a conversation than if I sat and had a conversation with somebody face-to-face about a topic. And the vocabulary is different. Your your way you you kind of organize your thoughts to to articulate something or or, or rebut somebody else's uh, comments is is mm-hmm. completely different. So. Yeah, transcribing and reading out a, um, a website that someone wrote an article versus hearing somebody that's that's kind of you know not winging it, but you know having a kind of actual conversation back and forth with somebody is a is a very different different feeling. And I, I imagine if your audience who is uh, reading or listening to your your podcast were to kind of switch and he, instead of hearing a conversation between the the group of you about something related to architecture, instead heard a transcribed version of an article, they would probably get a very different feeling or tune out or you know it's just a different a different feeling or about the environment that they're kind of engaging in terms of the audio.
2: Which completely goes back to your original interest in the body in space and the body's perception of you know, yeah. our brain's perceptions of things. Yeah. Yeah.
4: yeah. Sean, I, I wanted to ask you about this specifically and um, its implications for any type of pedagogical shift in architecture or just how you teach architecture. By the way, the um, voice actor service is called spoken editions, basically enough. But what really intrigues me about this distinction that we're making between the different kinds of podcasting of and these specifically different kinds of interviews um, has to do with kind of what your overall intent might be for having that interview. Is it two people having an interesting conversation where the people listening are likely to be inspired or think about things differently? Or is your intent from that conversation explicitly for the audience to go take away from that conversation information, new information that they didn't have explicitly to teach them something? And of course, those aren't mutually exclusive categories. But I find that the shorter form podcasts are where you're going to find the NPR style content that is like a reported story or a reported interview where there's a discrete. I wouldn't say checklist, but there's, like, evidence or information you're trying to get from that person. And yes, you want the conversation to be interesting, but you also have a goal. Whereas these, especially with comedians, comedians love their long-form podcasts. But, like, two- (laughs) or three-hour conversations, not only are you banking on the fact that that person in the conversation is inherently interesting to kind of make the conversation interesting. But you're also hoping that they have a degree of affability that allows for the conversation to even last that long. And when we all started first doing the podcast for Archonnect, we realized like that that was kind of a sticking point often with dealing with architectural personalities is because they wouldn't necessarily always have that conviviality of conversational ability that they could write like it was nobody's business and they, could, they were obviously incredibly intelligent and incredibly well-versed in their subject. But when it came time to maybe just talking about it in a conversational format, that posed an interesting challenge, both pedagogically and just entertaining-wise, to how to make a podcast that can kind of combine those two things for an audience that is both trained towards architecture, but also generalist that anyone could tune in and find something reliably interesting in it.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And that I think, like you were saying, sometimes you don't know what you're going to be delivering uh, until you record it. Because just like mm-hmm. you said, if you do come across someone who, who doesn't have, isn't very comfortable or unwilling to Talk on the subject matter in a, in a more casual manner where they're not actually you can't hold them to every single word. You know, it's, it's more about the intent of the larger conversation. It's not about pulling quotes out and putting, it right. in, you know, bold or whatever. You know, if you, it, so depending on who you're talking to, if you run across that, then you do find yourself filling in the gaps with more questions, you know, and I think at that point you do start guiding the conversation into very specific question answer question answer. And I think you do start to kind of control that arc of the larger podcast versus finding somebody who who's willing to to just kind of talk and maybe go into slightly different directions. And so I, I found that if if I want to have an hour conversation, if it goes really well, I can ask basically three questions. <laughs>
0: And those, those three are usually
1: enough to kind of move the conversation. And should it kind of, you know, ex- get it, you know kind of go as far as it can go, you can ask another question and kind of move it forward. But usually three, three is more than enough. And what I do maybe in sort of subject matter is try to, even though I'm talking to somebody who does a lot of different work, like uh, Mitchell Joachim from um, Terraform One, you know, the kind of breadth of work that they're doing from being an, a nonprofit to the kind of design objectives that they try to do to you know a, a wide range of, of work that they do. I was really trying to use that as a conversation about business models. So even though I was very interested in the work he does, the subtext here was in order to do that type of work, and in either to kind of engage that style of research, which interests me and hopefully the people in the podcast, you have to kind of work in this other model you know, which isn't tied to a university anymore, isn't tied for a for-profit architectural practice, but instead has to be this nonprofit business model that allows them to interact and not be beholden to a client or anything along those lines. And so in that case, that was something in which I did try to make it very much about the business model of being able to make this work possible. Or with Ed Finn, it was about, you know, the the imagination and or the storyline telling or, you know, with, uh, this coming up week is one with uh, Douglas Pancoast, who's here in Chicago. Oh,
2: Douglas and I were, were classmates at Cranbrook. That's oh, awesome. Nice. Okay. I'm glad you're talking to him. He's yeah, a great yeah. talker. Yeah. And so in that case,
1: uh, hopefully we're going to, what I'm trying to do with that is really um, bracket it down to politics. Um, Because some of the work that he'd been doing, he'd been getting a lot of pushback from the media here in Chicago that was retelling the same story, but always adding a few extra bits of information that were false. And so before you knew it, this kind of experiment project that they were doing here in Chicago very quickly became uh, misinformation and the kind of politics behind it was really, was really intriguing. So And a lot of that was because when you're dealing with technologies that are about recording and and, and data collection and then visualizing that information for the general public, people who don't know how to use that tech or don't understand the mechanics of that tech are going to jump to conclusions if certain parts of the media poke them enough to make them think that that's actually what's happening, they'll believe it. And there becomes a huge implication as to what a project really was intended to do, which was for the greater good of a community, but now is seen as a big brother obstacle. And it's really just the kind of politics of the technology. And so in those cases, really trying to not theme the podcast or even or even give it a title at any point in writing, but kind of run them along those lines so that uh, it's both informative for myself, but also hopefully for for people listening to it.
3: You know, Sean, I think the, the one thing that it was, like I said, I think I said it before, um, but it bears uh, repeating, is that the, you've got a really nice balance of having a conversation about really uh, very difficult Things to uh, get across in a podcast and have it be interesting and pulling out the the subjects humanity, which is we've we've encountered some of those experiences where uh, you're you're trying to pull out that the essence of who that person is to kind of, you know, kind of make their their processes more connectable. And I think that what's so uh, I appreciate about your podcast is that you straddle this line kind of going back and forth. And it's really um, it's such an easy conversation to have to hear you have actually. It's good to hear. Thanks. So the uh, the big question at the end: What are you uh, What are you reading right
1: now, and what are you listening to? Listening, listening to. Let's see. I mean, well, well, I found out that more recently that book wise, I've been actually my little little secret uh, locator of new publications has been the Nature Journal. So it's a weekly. Subscription. I actually get it as a physical artifact in my mailbox. So something about that is nice. <laughs> it actually means I look at it. If it's just something that goes into my email, I just somehow find other ways of. I think like most of us, if you go to your iPhone and hit your Safari button, there's like 80 pages open of things you plan on one day looking at. Um, <laughs> and so when the journal actually comes up, I actually look at it. And they have a great little section about books that they that they they kind of recommend and look at. And there's usually at least one in there that I that I find interesting. Um, so right now. Um, what am I reading? I, I do have a problem of of um, the guy that doesn't know how any book ever ends because mm-hmm. I never get to the end of it. I always somehow find another one to pick up and start reading. So I don't know how any stories <laughs> come to an end. But one that I just got and that looks really great that I'm about to start um, by Adam Rutherford called "Is a Brief History of Everyone Who Ever Lived," and it's mm-hmm. um, it's about our genes and it's just basically going through the genes of, um, of our species and talking about the evolution of that and, and, and what that means. And in terms of, of music, um, I've been actually really getting into looking through um, Spotify and really trying to look at uh, various uh, stations and playlists. And a lot of it now is, to be specific, the, I really like the new DJ Shadow album that just came out, um, Baths. Um, the, the song Animals, um, Slumberjack, um, just a kind of, just a small example of of stuff. I don't know how to be any more specific than that, but...
4: Is that stuff that Spotify recommended to you? It's actually, I think I found
1: some of that off of their playlist.
4: The Discover Weekly thing that is uh, tailored to each individual account?
1: This one, they just, yeah I don't know. This one's just called Heady Beats.
4: Oh, okay. Yeah, they have custom-made playlists and such, and then there's one that they... By tracking your own listening habits, will suggest. Oh, they produced one
1: for you. Mm-hmm. You know that that's interesting because there was a playlist that was on here that I really loved. Um, I had it on here, and I went back, and it was gone. And it very well could have been the same playlist. They just kind of gave me new songs. Yes, that that's it.
4: actually a known uh, kind of beef in the Spotify user community okay. that those good. playlists disappear, and even if you, and you have to like manually save them every week. That's if you, good. Okay,
1: and it's good to know. I thought I was going crazy because I was like, "That was a really <laughs> well selected." <laughs> I've select. been through that I went as back well. to it, and I was like. Why are they not there anymore? <laughs> and so, yeah, those kind of heady beats. Looking through that, um, and um, yeah, yeah, I, I really do try to to mix it between nonfiction and fiction. I, the uh, going back to Ed Finn for the um, the Institute for Imagination and the Sciences. They have a, a book called from or a group within that organization called the Hieroglyph Project, and that's a really great a great uh, resource for people if they want to look at it. They, so they produce a series of books. Just recently, I think they put out a, a small selection with Kim Stanley, who wrote the uh, the introduction of it. He, he wrote uh, 2113, I believe, 2112, a science fiction piece. And so these are all science fiction pieces in which they kind of correlate a relationship between a science fiction writer and some scientists and engineers. And they kind of collaborate in some way to actually understand the background of the story and kind of inform the story. So I wouldn't really call, quite call it hard Sci-fi, but it's it's just a, a way of kind of intermingling the idea of reading a book that's 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 non-fiction, you know, about say the energy grid, but also kind of playing it off and looking at something that is in that hieroglyph book that's really about the grid through the lens of a science fiction writer who's thinking about fifty years from now outside of um, of San Diego and Mexico and what that means for for a water drought or something.
0: Well, thanks so much for joining us today, Sean, and and uh, talking about the podcast. And to uh, all our listeners out there, make sure to uh, check it out. It's uh, Night White Skies, and it's probably available on all places that people listen to podcasts. Is that right? Yeah, iTunes, Spotify. Yeah, or not Spotify, SoundCloud.
1: I haven't had. It's not on SoundCloud yet. I have it just on iTunes and then the uh, the website. Well, it'll grow in time.
0: There's word out there that Spotify is in negotiations with SoundCloud to buy SoundCloud. So might be on Spotify if you put it on SoundCloud soon. Okay, good to know. (laughs) Whether you like it or not, yeah. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) And thanks to everybody else out there listening to us this week. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, you can reach us on Twitter at our Twitter account, ArcSessions, or with hashtag ArcConnectSessions. You can also send an email to us at connect at arcconnect.com. And if you enjoy this podcast, please consider rating us on iTunes. And our other podcast, One to One, make sure to uh, check out the the most recent episode uh, where Amelia interviewed Stephen Hall down in in San Diego at the Salk Institute. It was a really fascinating conversation, so don't miss that. And then next week, I believe, uh, Amelia, you're going to be sharing your interview with Deborah Burke.
4: Yes. So this is some, in some ways a follow-up from our Archanex Sessions podcast last week, where we spoke to the organizers of Exhibit Columbus, where Deborah Burke was a keynote speaker. And so you might've seen Donna Sink's uh, incomparable live tweeting from Exhibit Columbus, where she took over Archanex Twitter account. And so with Donna's help of kind of being on the ground, uh, I am going to speak with Deborah about how the overall Exhibit Columbus went and what kind of intentions there were and, and just her practice in general.
0: Yeah, Donna, that was really great live tweeting. I felt like I was there. I'm glad. Thanks so much for doing that. It was fun. All right. Talk to everybody next week.
4: Have a good week, everyone. Thank you. Thanks, everyone. Take care. Bye. Bye.